Well, good morning and welcome. If you're a guest, thanks so much for being a part of our service today. You know, my wife and I, we just sit down here on the front row, and as we were singing this morning, just really, just really powerful worship, uh, I thought about what was happening worldwide, sometimes at the same time right now, but because there's so many time zones, there are millions, hundreds of millions of believers who have gathered like this. Some in a really nice building like this, some under a tree, some in a little shack. I remember uh, on a trip I took to Haiti, uh, a little shack of a school and that was doubled as their church. I've been to Cuba and I've seen the tremendous challenges they face and yet being in worship services with those Cuban people, it just, they're exuberant because they know the God they serve. Friday night I was on a on a podcast call with a doctor, a plastic surgeon, Christian plastic surgeon out of Malaysia. And he was just interviewing me about uh, some, some things I've written about. And I thought, you know, there's a 12 hours difference, but they, those believers there, are worshiping God as well. So one of the things that I do when I, uh, I, I sing, obviously I sing a lot and enjoy singing, but I sometimes will close my eyes and I won't sing, I would just listen to you singing and worshiping. And I think about the words. Do that sometimes. Just kind of close your eyes and listen and mull over and think about the truths of those words. And those lyrics and those statements. Because they are so full of powerful truth. So, just a little idea. So, uh, I'm going to ask you a question this morning. And I want you to imagine that I am asking this question to a Christian, you know, a committed Christian. And I pose this question to them, or even to you. How would somebody probably answer? What would probably be their first answer? Here is the question. Do you love Jesus? Now, what is a real Christian going to say? Yes, of course I love Jesus. You know, he died on the cross for me, you know, all that stuff. Of course I do. Now, if I ask the second question, how quickly might that person answer? Hmm, there may be a pause there. There may be some qualifications. There may be a little bit of hemming and hawing. That's the southern term for delay. So there may, have, may be some of that. To what degree does your walk match your talk? Now, let's, let's just be honest. Fully following Jesus is not easy to do. It's challenging, especially in this world that's drifting more and more away from the Judeo-Christian worldview. But as followers of Jesus Christ, to translate this, I love Jesus, to really mean this means that this should match this. That is how we live should match our profession. But it's challenging sometimes. Let's all face it. So we're continuing our series today in Mark. And I believe this message today will give us a little bit of clarity on how do we really match our walk with our talk on a more consistent basis. So here is the big idea. We're going to look at six ideas this morning. The big idea is this. Events during the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which we're going to see in the scripture this morning, reveals six truths or ideas that we must embrace so that we match our walk to our talk. 
Now, last week's message actually kind of set us up for this. If you were here, you're going to see some parallels and some reminders of some of the things we saw last week. I actually posed questions to you again. Somebody said that Jesus asked over 300 questions. That's a lot of questions. Questions are very powerful tools to help us learn and help us think. So last week, I asked you these questions. Four questions, I think. Yeah, no, five questions. Four. I can still count. Four. How preeminent is Jesus in your life? Now, that relates to today. Isaiah, the prophet, we saw a prophecy that was quoted in the passage last week from Isaiah. Is anything hindering your walk in the path of Jesus? See the similarities to this week. John the Baptist, who was the precursor, who was kind of like the advanced man for Jesus, the question related to him was, how well does your life embody your profession? John the Baptist preached out in the wilderness, and some scholars say up to 300,000 people were baptized in response to his message. They were drawn to John the Baptist. One of the reasons, because as he embodied what he taught, he walked his talk. The Holy Spirit we saw last week. How consistent Do you yield your heart to the Spirit's prompting? So those questions, I think, kind of set us up for today. Now, here's today's passage, Mark 1, 9 through 20. So if you want to get your Bibles out or get your Bible app, we're going to read that. I'm going to read it. You can follow along. So why don't you stand while I read Mark 1, 9 through 20. Okay, here we go. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee And was baptized by John, that's John the Baptist, in the Jordan, Jordan River. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And it says at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And he says, after John was put in prison, we'll talk more about that later. John the Baptist was put in prison, later beheaded. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Then it says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Here's what he said. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Not fish, but men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with a hired man and followed him. Okay, so you can have a seat. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's, let's unpack that and see how these insights that we learned this morning from this passage show us how to match our walk with our talk. So he begins and he says, the very first part, Jesus came from Nazareth. He was baptized by John. And this is a little key phrase here. I don't know if you notice this. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, that gives us a clue about the, what baptism is. Out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, the question I want to ask you is, why did Jesus get baptized? Just think about that. Just answer that in your mind. Why did Jesus get baptized? He had no need to repent. He was, he was sinless. He was God's son. But he got baptized. Why did he get baptized? 
Let me give you what I believe to be our four reasons he got baptized. The first one was to identify with human nature and weakness. Now, Jesus had no sin. Let me just say this right up front. He had no sin. He did not need to repent, as I said just a moment ago. But his baptism was a way to identify with our weakness. By his baptism, he associated with us as sinners, placing upon himself all of our sin. Not that he was intrinsically sinful, but he took upon himself all of our sin. And baptism is one of the ways he was able to identify with human nature. Second, to honor John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus deeply, deeply admired John the Baptist. He says, no one's greater than, than this guy here. To make a public statement, number three, that he intended to follow his heavenly father. That God's will, God the Father's will was going to be his will. But then this next one is really kind of where the rubber meets the road, very practical. To set an example for us to do what? Get baptized. Thank you, Cheryl. I cue her with the question. So if I don't get any answers, at least one person does. So uh, anyway, by the way, uh, when I like to tell a joke... Uh, and, and you laugh, it just does something for me. And I know sometimes I've been told my, my humor is, is so advanced, it's so advanced that it goes over some people's heads sometimes. So, so Curtis, my, my son Josh, he's a pastor in Cleveland. He says, Dad, you need to understand that when, when people laugh at your jokes, they're giving you a courtesy laugh. <laughs> so. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Let's go back to this verse here. As Jesus was coming up, out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So this idea when he's saying heaven torn open is the way to describe this earth-shaking event that's happening right now. God's approval upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Now, in Jewish literature, there was actually a technique they would use to describe uh, cataclysmic things by using cataclysmic words like being torn open. Same word was used when Jesus died on the cross. It says in the temple, this huge, thick curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the most holy place where God was seen to dwell was torn from top to bottom. Same term. It's, a, it's an idea to really create a stark statement. And both of these supernatural events, the tearing open of heaven and the tearing of that curtain, uh, attest to the fact that Jesus was indeed truly God's son. Now we've got this other image right here of a dove. He uses the image of a dove not to describe the Holy Spirit that looks like a dove. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. Rather, he's describing a dove. If you'll notice, a dove is one of those birds that when it lands, it's kind of a real gentle landing. And the dove is a symbol of what? Gentleness. Jesus came to conquer, conquer sin, but he did it with love and grace and gentleness. But he certainly wasn't a pushover. Now, this little phrase here, descending on him like a dove, really the, the, the better translation is descending into him. That's what scholars tell us. That is, it indicates Jesus' complete filling and empowering the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit for his job that's going to occur next is sharing the gospel, you know, for the next three years. In Luke 4, 18, Jesus himself says, the Spirit has come upon me. Then he says, this voice from heaven, you're my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was the only one that heard this. Now, what we have to surmise is that Jesus told Peter about this. And Peter told Mark because Mark and Peter worked together and Mark wrote this down. So what's happening here is, is God is stating his ultimate approval of Jesus, his son. 
the divine proclamation, you are my son, I'm well pleased with you, expresses his steadfast love for his son, as well as their essential unity. Both are God. So, Jesus' baptism is a keystone event in Jesus' life. And the empowerment of the Spirit uh, is God's declaration from heaven when he says, you are my son, enabling Jesus to not only speak for God, but as God as well. Now, you think after something so amazing as this, you know, the Holy Spirit indwells Jesus, there'd be some like celebration or party or something like that. That's not what happened next. What happened next was this. It says, God sent out into the desert. The Spirit, the same Spirit that filled him, sent him out into the desert. And he was there 40 days. He was tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. So the very same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus to empower him for his ministry sent him out into the desert. Now, if you were a Jew and you heard the word uh, uh, desert, you would think gloom and doom and the place where demons live. It was a 40-day experience. If you go to the Old Testament, two other biblical characters spent 40 days in the wilderness as well. One was Moses, one was Elijah. Now, these wilderness experiences were somewhat of a kind of a proving ground, a, a test for faithfulness along with a promise of deliverance. So the same spirit who came upon Jesus sent him out into the wilderness to be tested uh, to determine if he would submit to God's will. Now we know he did and Jesus did not sin, but it's a, it may seem to be an odd statement because we know Jesus was sinless, but Jesus' success, this is important, really listen to this, Jesus' success in resisting Satan in the wilderness reminds us that Jesus was not only fully God, but he was fully human and he chose to make God's will his will. He chose to say no to temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit that we have in us. That's an encouragement to us. When we're tempted, we have the same spirit that was in Jesus that empowered Jesus to say no to temptation. Now, a word about Satan here. Satan really is, is the word uh, that, that means adversary. It is the essence of everything that's against God. So Satan tempted Jesus to sin. In response, Jesus called upon the power of the Holy Spirit and said no to sin. And that's good news for us because that same spirit lives in us. He also said the angels attended to them. Now this was really, was probably really encouragement to the Roman Christians. I said in our first, first message that this book was primarily written to the Roman Christians and they were intensely persecuted. Emperor Nero was savagely persecuted the early Christians. And this would have been a real encouragement to those early Christians to know that, you know, Jesus himself was thrown to the wild animals as the angels attended them. So I think we could probably assume that if we face martyrdom, martyrdom, the Holy Spirit and those angels will attend to us as well. Another key word here, tempted. Now this word tempted can also mean test. It's one and the same word. God does not tempt us. Get that clear. God does not tempt us, but he tests us to make us stronger. Satan does not test us, but he tempts us to make us fall. So God tests and Satan tempts. So here we have Jesus humbling himself to be baptized, identifying with our sin, though he had no sin. And he identifies with temptation. He battled Satan with the same power you and I have, Holy Spirit. Then he says this, after John was put in prison... He went into Galilee proclaiming this good news of God. 
The time has come. Important word there, this word time. Come back to that in a minute. The kingdom of God is near repent and believe the good news. This is one of the key verses in Mark. You know, when I read these commentaries, they'll say, this is a key verse, or this is a key verse, or this is a key verse. This is a very, very key verse in this book here. Because it speaks of good news. And why is it good news? Because of all the things it implies. It implies forgiveness and restoration and new life in Christ and, and hope and peace and joy and eternal life and God's promises and salvation. It's good news because of that and so many other things. So the good news is the gospel, the content certainly of Jesus' teaching, plus it's Jesus as well. So when we speak of the gospel, we speak of the content but also the person of Jesus. Now, let me circle this word again here, the word time. Um, I'm kind of a, kind of a goal-oriented person. I'm, you know, I, I have Outlook on my computer, and Cheryl, Cheryl and I were talking about when uh, um, unexpected things come up, how we process those things differently. When something unexpected comes up, you know, it's going to interfere with my account. It's like, oh, this is exciting. Now I can go to my Outlook and I can see how I can put all these little pieces together. So it's fun. You know, I know that may sound weird, but it's kind of fun. Is anybody else like that? Oh. Oh, I see all those hands. You're just afraid to raise them. I know that. But this time here, yes, it is clock time in one sense. But in another sense, it's beyond clock time. It's, uh, as you look in the history, in the Old Testament, the people were looking forward to the Messiah. And uh, John the Baptist was a precursor to pave the way for the Messiah to come. Jesus fulfilled that promise. And what happened is, now that, that time is this um, definitive, defining moment in history. Jesus has come and he's beginning his public ministry. That's another little insight right here. We call it good news. I just listed all that good news. But notice where, how he couched this. He couched it right after he said John was put in prison. Good news does not mean easy. Following Jesus uh, does not imply it's going to be easy to follow Jesus. There's another phrase here. Let me kind of clear out some of these here, make it a little easier to see. All right. This one here, the kingdom of God is near. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's got to be pretty important because 14 times Mark mentions this in the book. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah to come to inaugurate a physical kingdom, but Jesus came and he refers more to a spiritual kingdom both now and the future. So I want to give you a definition of the kingdom of God because you're going to see this several times if you're going to be reading through the book with us. Here it is. The kingdom of God is the present and future rule, reign, and realm of God manifested or made known in Jesus' followers' walk and talk and belief and behavior. It's a, it's here, but not yet fully. It is getting closer and closer to being fully realized every second that ticks by we're getting closer and closer to the time when Jesus returns and he sets up his his uh, everlasting kingdom but the kingdom of God is a we're here we're experiencing the kingdom of God but it's not yet now here's another thought 
The kingdom of God is also a phrase that captures the substance of Jesus' teaching and is identified in the closest way possible to his own person and ministry. So one day, the full kingdom, 100% it's going to be established. Right now we're in it, but not yet. So our response is to be repent and believe the good news. Now last week we talked about repent. Remember I talked about repent, what it meant? See, see repent and believe is kind of two sides of the same coin. Repent is turning from, functionally, or fundamentally it means turning from something. Here it means turning from sin, believe, and turning to Jesus. Turning to what he has done uh, on the cross. Turning to the truth about him. To turning to him as a person, God himself. So turning from and turning to. Now the idea here, certainly there's this once for all. There's, there's this point in time when a person comes to faith and a point in time they become a Christian. Boom, I place my faith in Jesus. I repent of my sins. Boom. Yet the original words kind of give the idea, the tense of these words, it's ongoing as well. That it's living a life of like, okay, when I stumble, I fall. I repent of that and I turn back to Jesus. Jesus, I'm so sorry, you know, cleanse me of that. So it's an ongoing pattern of life as well. Now we next see Jesus' first recorded act in his ministry. It wasn't something spectacular like you might think it would be. Here's, but what he did was he, he called out four brothers to follow him. Here's the Sea of Galilee. It's, uh, see, I, I brought the... Uh, size down 22 kilometers by nine kilometers and uh, so Jesus was walking along the sea of Galilee this is where much of his ministry was and as he was walking along the sea he found a couple of brothers Simon and Andrew and they were casting a net into the lake now the net this is the, the fishing they were doing is not this kind of fishing you know anybody fisherman here or fisherwoman that's right yeah okay it's not that kind it's the net fishing I'm always amazed when I watch these little videos on, uh, on YouTube and it's, it's a net that has weights at the bottom and somehow these guys throw it out into this perfect circle and it drops on the water. It uh, goes down to the very bottom and they pull it up and that's full of fish. I, I could never do that. But I'm always amazed. That's what they were doing. It, it wasn't this kind of fishing. It was kind of net fishing. So he found these two brothers doing that and he said, hey, come, follow me. And I'm going to make you fishers of men. But it says that once they left their nets and followed him. Now, fishing in the Sea of Galilee was so important. That was kind of the main staple. They didn't have like beef like, like we, do, we do. But it was, it was fish. And the fishing was so good, they actually imported some, some of it to, to Egypt. Then, comes up again. Going a little farther, saw two more brothers, James and his brother John, they were in a boat. They were preparing their nets. Probably, you know, the nets would tear, so they were fixing them. He said to them, he called them, and without delay, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with a hired man and followed him. Now, who were these guys? Who were these disciples? What do we know about these guys? Well, they were ordinary folks like, like us. I can say, you, know, you may be unordinary, but let's just say we're all ordinary, you know. They didn't come from royalty. They weren't wealthy. All of these guys here, apparently, they did pretty well because it says he had some hired men. So they probably had a pretty good business going there. They weren't highly educated. They probably had heard Jesus preach. Maybe in one of those crowds because it was kind of along the same line. Jesus was preaching and he was calling these disciples out. So maybe they heard him preach and maybe they were uh, kind of enthralled by some of the things he said. Maybe they'd had conversations about that. 
And when he called them, he appealed to their heart and will. Not a philosophical system. He appealed, he called them, just, you know, follow me. Now, when I was starting this passage, and it, when it says, and immediately they left their father and those kind of things, I thought, well, what if they had outstanding debts? Did, did they walk away from their debts? What if they had families? Did they just leave their families? Well, actually, this was not this absolute renunciation of their families because we find later they came back to their homes because their homes kind of became the home base. So they immediately followed Jesus. And the word follow is really, really important to understand. The word follow actually uh, means that you have uh, accepted the summons of somebody else and that other person, you put yourself under their authority and you become attached to them. And that's what we call discipleship following Jesus. And there are three components of discipleship. And we get this from this passage. Number one, Jesus does the calling. Now this was very, very interesting how Jesus called his followers, his learners, his disciples. Because in that day and time, there were rabbis that would set up these little schools everywhere. And the way they got their students was the student wouldn't come to them. The, the teacher didn't go out to get them. The student would come to them. And if they were going to be in their schools, they had to have a good understanding of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And sometimes they'd have to pass an exam to get in that school. Jesus was vastly different. He didn't wait for them to come. He took the initiative. He called them out. He didn't call them to some philosophical uh, uh, belief system. He called them to who? himself. And what they were going to learn, he was going to show them how to live this full obedient life to God and teach them as they spent time together. So Jesus did the calling, does the calling. Secondly, it's a call to service. The original language actually kind of has it like this, like, I shall make you become fishers of men. Because becoming a fully, follow, fully devoted follower of Jesus takes time. It is hard. It is challenging. It is difficult. But it's a call not to, what do I get out of this? Now, let me say, we get a lot of stuff out of coming to faith. Uh, in this life and the next life. There are all kinds of blessings we get. But the primary motive is not, what do I get from this? But rather, okay, I'm called to serve you, God. And I'm called to serve others. It's a call to service. And here's the next one. It's formed with others. Notice Jesus picked a few, total of 12. You know, one of them went by the wayside, Judas. Following Jesus is not solo. That's why we encourage off and get into a group, build friendships. That's why we come together. And to, to foster that, what we're going to be doing over the next several months, once a month, we're going to have some kind of a little fellowship after church. Uh, we did a barbecue, a cookout. Few, uh, a few weeks ago, so can't get beyond barbecues, not having barbecue sauce. Anyway, but we're going to have like maybe a cake one time or, you know, candy or something light so that we'll hang around in the lobby just to build relationship. That's so, so important. So it's formed with others. It's discipleship is formed into fellowship. So a lot happened in those first few verses we see here as Jesus began his public ministry, five pivotal events. Number one, he got baptized for several reasons. One of those is so that we would be encouraged to be baptized. The Holy Spirit anointed him, came upon him. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. He began picking his disciples and he began his public ministry of preaching and healing. Now, what are the implications 
What are the implications? Remember the big idea I said a while ago, okay, what about our walk and our talk? What are the implications? I think one word captures it all. It's the word obedience. I think that captures this whole thing. Now, let me say, God has a plan for your life. For every single person here, God has a plan for you. Just like he had a plan for these disciples that he called out. And you know what that plan involves? Being fishers of men and women and boys and girls. Now it looks different. You're not going to, now maybe some of you will become pastors, but most of you probably won't, won't become a pastor. We won't become street preachers probably like John the Baptist because he's we'd the equivalent of a street preacher. But he has a plan for you and we are to be fishers of men in our circles and business world and the clubs we're part of, the athletic uh, teams we're part of, the schools we're a part of. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Remember that original question? Do you love Jesus? Everybody knows the answer. Of course I do. But then, to nuance it out a bit, to what degree does our walk match our talk? Then I gave you the big idea. We're going to look at these six truths that are necessary for us to embrace and understand if we are going in, indeed to match our walk with our talk. So, let's fill them in now. Okay? Number one is repent and believe. This is what John the Baptist and Jesus were preaching and teaching. This is the first place to start. If you want this life with God, you got to have a relationship with him. We have a relationship with him when we repent of our sins and we turn to Christ. A one-time event. So maybe some of you, maybe you've been coming to church, maybe like friends invite you, but you're not a follower of Jesus. If, if you want this God life, this is where you got to start. This is the starting point. All the rest of this is not going to happen unless you start here. So that's the first one. Repent and believe. There's a second one. Make your profession public. Remember, Jesus was baptized. In fact, did you ca- the, the word baptism actually means dip or immerse. Did you catch that as Jesus was coming out? So we teach baptism by immersion. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not taken that step of baptism, how come? You will get wet. Your hair will stick to you. Uh, if you wear glasses, they'll get wet, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you've not taken this step of baptism, you need to call the church office, email us. We'll let you know. We'll, we'll get you lined up to be baptized. So make your profession public. Third one is obey God's promptings immediately. Have you noticed, there's notice in the scripture we read, this immediate obedient response, Mark used at once for the spirit pushing Jesus out in the wilderness. The same word was used for the four disciples. They had once responded. A few years ago, I shared a little concept with you that I think is really helpful. It's called the 10 second rule. The 10 second rule goes like this. If the spirit is prompting you to do something and you don't act within 10 seconds, you're probably going to forget it. You know, the Holy Spirit works in a gentle, quiet way, not through lightning and thunder. But when he prompts us to do something and we don't act on it within a few seconds, it's going to be out of sight, out of mind. 
So what I'm saying here is develop the sensitivity to those gentle whisperings of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And when he tells you to do something, impresses on you, do it then. Or if it, maybe you can't do it right then. You want to have a conversation with somebody or write a letter to somebody, send an email, encourage somebody or, you know, apologize to somebody. Send yourself an email. Write yourself a note so that you will remember what the Holy Spirit prompted to you during that little short window. So obey God's promptings immediately. Here's the next one. Don't quit when tested. I've said this two or three times today. The Christian life's a struggle. It's hard. Tests will come. Temptations will come. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. The worst time to quit is when the heat is on. Don't quit when tested. Here's the next thing we see. Pay the price. Following Jesus is costly. I've been in other countries that uh, third world, fourth world countries. And let me tell you what, they pay the price. They ain't got nothing. And many times they ain't got nothing because they stood for Christ. They stood for their faith. We have it pretty good here. We look at the scripture we've been reading. John cut out some things. He was not, he cut out fancy clothes and things like that. Uh, the disciples gave up their livelihoods, their income, their stability. Now I'm not saying you do what they do, okay. It's different for all of us. But what I mean is there is sacrifice. To follow Jesus means there is sacrifice. It may be time. It may be money. Maybe we need uh, to let go of some of these things we do that are hindering us. Pay the price. But here's the wonderful promise. The wonderful promise. When we do obey and there is a cost involved, here's what God says. Trust that God will provide. We see it in this verse here, this, these scriptures here. The Holy Spirit was there supporting and giving Jesus everything he needed. The angels attended to him. If you act in faith, following what God tells you to do, and it costs you something, God says, I will give you what you need. The sustenance, the time, the resources, the courage, the strength, the grace. He told the Apostle Paul, I mean, this is the uber Christian, the super Christian, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul prayed, prayed three times for God to remove this, this problem he was having. It could be a physical thing. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. And folks, that's, that's sometimes all we have to cling to when life gets so bad. To believe by faith that God's going to see me through. That his grace is indeed sufficient for this point in time. Now, I'm going to put them all up here on one slide. And I want you to think through which, which one of these like really resonated the most with you. Repent and believe. Make your profession public. Obey God's promptings immediately. Don't quit when tested. Pay the price. Trust that God will provide. So which one of these would you say, hey, this really resonated with me, Charles. Maybe for you, you need to become a Christian today. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe you've never been baptized and today like you realize, you know, I need to do what Jesus did. Maybe you need to, maybe you're realizing, you know, I know God's prompted me to do things and I've just forgotten. I'm like, I'm going to develop a, some sort of system to help me remember to obey his promptings if I can't do them in the moment. Maybe you found yourself to be somewhat of a quitter <laughs> and God's prompting you and burning your heart like, I, I, I'm not going to quit anymore. Maybe you realize, wow, I, there's very little sacrifice in my life for Jesus. But maybe today God is telling you, hey, just trust me. Trust me. 
I'm going to provide for you. So pick one of these. Just pick one. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we, I want to take a, just a few seconds of reflection. If you want to look back up at the screen to see these again, do so. But let's just pause for a bit, then I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth that's in the gospel. And we thank you also that the gospel is Jesus. And we're called to a person. And Lord, I, my own life, it's, it's not been easy to following you. But I, take, I can say from my personal experience what a joy it is when we step out in obedience. As hard as it may be, there is great joy that follows. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us as we look at these kind of six ideas. And may your Holy Spirit take one of those and drive it deep into our soul, deep into our heart. May we be willing to step out in faith in whatever your Spirit is prompting us to do. And Lord, for our closest prayer, I want to pray for that person where number one was that stood out to them the most, repent and believe. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus. You don't have to clean up to do that. You just need to come with a, with a soft heart that says, Jesus, I turn from my sins. By faith, I place my faith in you. I want to become a follower of Jesus and have my sins forgiven. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths, embed them deep into our soul this next week. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.